The joyousness of our song service continues to be so exciting. Songs like, I am thine, O Lord, and songs like, how sweet, how heavenly. That's just two of the songs that we have sung so far in our service tonight, and we're thankful that God has allowed us the voices and the capacity to, to raise the thought of His name in that way. And it's certainly good for each of us to be here tonight. We're thankful for our membership, our visitors alike, and we each would desire to use this time to honor and magnify the cause of the great kingdom of God. As we come to this particular service tonight, you probably can tell from what's on the wall behind me, what's in front of you, we'll be looking at some interesting features connected to the laughter of God. In fact, as you notice on this next slide, This next slide is merely an introduction, albeit a brief one. Wouldn't you be amazed to at least contemplate that the Word of God reveals to us quite a few things that God does? When you give thought to God and His qualities, when you give thought to the God of heaven and the attributes which He displays, what comes to mind? You and I are so familiar with the way humans behave, and so we're quite comfortable with the way that we or others behave, but could I ask... As you give thought to God, what kinds of things describe His behavior? Does God become angry? Sure He does. Do you recall the text of Numbers 11, verses 1 and following, when His anger is detailed in amazing consideration? Is God compassionate? Of course He is. Lamentations 3.22 highlights the fact that His compassions never fail. That list could continue onward. We also could ask, does God laugh? Are there circumstances that lead God to laugh? We're going to answer that question tonight. If you'd be turning to the second of the Psalms, we will in fact begin our study in that location. The Bible does identify for us the fact that God does laugh. Now, you and I know that we often find ourselves in laughter. Maybe someone tells a funny joke, or maybe someone does something, sometimes it's maybe your children or grandchildren, who does something that's just so sweet and funny. Could I ask this question, though, given the fact that God does laugh, what makes Him laugh? What does the Bible reveal that would be the source causing Him to laugh? Let's study about that tonight. You may notice on that slide before you, I'm going to go ahead and assert that one of the things we shall discover in the course of this study is that the very laughter of God is a source of great reassurance and comfort and faith-building character for those that love the Lord. Let's see if we can develop that tonight, beginning with this text that's now before you. In the second of the Psalms, we encounter the first place that I was able to find in the Bible that makes discussion directly of the laughter of God. That's it by itself a bit intriguing. Allow me to begin reading in verse number 1 of that chapter, and by the time we reach verse 4, we will already have the passage in mind that discusses the laughter of God. Psalm chapter 2. I'll begin reading in verse number 1. Why do the heathen rage, and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder, and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. 
And almost immediately, we encounter this passage that helps us appreciate in verse 4, it details that he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. On that slide, I would invite you to step with me through a few observations, and then we'll recast our attention on the laughter of God. First of all, beginning in verse number 1, the heathen, that is to say the nations, conspire. The original meaning of the word in that original language brings the thought of conspiring. It brings the thought of actively working toward an end, which in this case is opposed to the will and the thrust of God. But that same verse states it like this, The people imagine. That word imagine means to meditate in this case. It means to give thoughtful enterprise with respect to bringing about something. And so isn't it true there's meditation? There is a conspiring. And now you may notice that it's a vain thing. This which is being meditated upon, this is which is being pursued, is not something that's wholesome. It is not something that is worthwhile in the ultimate sense. It's vain. And yet you notice it has captured the attention of many. It says the nations. Now verse number 2 even continues that elaboration by saying it involves even in instances those that are in positions of authority. Kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord. There are occasions and times when you see the human family, no doubt supposing it's in wisdom, but nonetheless they make arrangements and plans that are against the things of God. They often make plots and conspiring. They have ideas in mind to bring things about, but it's against the matter of God. As you'll notice the ending of verse 2, it also says against His anointed. At this point, as you give thought to this reference to the anointed of heaven, you and I should appreciate that the God of heaven has given His stamp of approval, His anointing, thrust, and power. And for you and me in our present day today, it is our wonderful Savior. In fact, this very passage is quoted in Hebrews chapter 1, and there it's applied to none other than Jesus Himself. You and I thus should desire to bow in submission before Him, and the world ought to do this too. But so often the world doesn't. So often the world has a different idea, a different matter in mind, and refuses absolutely to acknowledge or submit or bow before the majesty of the Lord's anointed. And in so doing, you and I might begin to ask, how does God react to this? When the world He has created... And the people that inhabit it make choices that are against His will. How does our Heavenly Father react? Does He wring His hands in discouragement? Does He find Himself in worry? Is it the case that our Heavenly Father behaves in such a fashion that He is distraught? Verse number 4 gives you the answer. He that sitteth in the heavens. Would you please take note? Far from wringing His hands in worry... Far from behaving in a fashion, respondent in other ways, he sits. God sits. He isn't bothered in the ultimate sense by this. And in fact, the next statement is, he shall have them in laughter. He shall laugh. We now know how our Heavenly Father responds. When men plot and conspire against His will, they are not going to be able to overthrow that which is His will. 
they will never in the ultimate sense overthrow the urgency and the grandeur of that which is the colossal truth of God. Men may try. They may plot and conspire. But our Heavenly Father is such that He will laugh at these attempts on the part of man. In fact, as you notice there, look at how that latter part of verse 4 continues to read this. The Lord shall have them in derision. Now that word derision may not be one that we often utilize, but it means to mock. The Lord, you see, not only laughs at this circumstance, but He appreciates by way of response that He, in essence, mocks at their attempt. That they have the nerve, the gall, the consideration to suppose that they can overthrow the will of the ultimate Creator of all things. I hope you and I are beginning to get a feeling for God's laughter. He laughs at those who make a plot against His will. He laughs at those who have the urgency and the thought that they can conspire with success against Him. They will not succeed. In fact, the next few verses goes on to say this in His continued reaction. Verse number 5, Then shall He speak unto them in His wrath, and vex them in His sore displeasure. Notice, God's wrath is here mentioned. In response to these who have made this attempt, His wrath will be raised. And it goes on to reference His sore displeasure. It is interesting then that verse 6 says, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. That again is in that very passage quoted in the book of Hebrews, and you and I can appreciate the one to whom it refers, the Son of God. And in this very passage, the Lord's anointed, God's laughter. As you close that slide with me, notice a few other things that I've invited you to consider. This reference to the laughter of God. You and I can appreciate that in Matthew 25, verses 31 and following, there is a picture a, a rather vivid portrait about the scene of the judgment. And yet, verse number 32 carefully says that all nations will be gathered there. Those who, in fact, have humbly submitted to Him, but those who have not. Those who have acted in abject resistance to His will. You'll notice this text said, the heathen rage, they conspire, they plot, and yet God laughs. Maybe one final thought. May you and I be reassured that God's plan will not be thwarted. It will not be overthrown. His will shall be accomplished. And He even laughs at those who would make an effort, an attempt to plot against its success. Are there any other references to the laughter of God? Here's one. Let's look at a second one. It's also found in the Psalms. Would you turn to Psalm 37 with me? Psalm 37, we shall focus on verse 13 in just a moment. But just as was the case earlier, it might do us well to think somewhat about the building up, the introduction that brings us to that passage. Psalm 37 is one that no doubt has been a source of tremendous comfort and strength and fortification. In fact, some quite familiar verses are found in this very chapter. Could I point out to you verse number 5? Commit thy way unto the Lord. 
Trust also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass. A reminder of the intent that should be ours to commit, to make a firm and dedicated decision in every way to the matters which are the will of God. And if we shall do that, then you and I can appreciate that promise. Trust in Him, and He shall bring that which is your plan to pass. As you keep that thought in mind, notice also verse 25, which is another familiar one. I have been young and I am old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. A constant reminder of the intent and the blessing and provision of God upon those who are his children. It is in between all of them that we encounter verse 13. In that passage, we notice it says, The Lord shall laugh at him, for he seeth that his day is coming. You and I might initially ask, who's the him in this case? Who is it that is the object of the Lord's laughter? All we need to do is step back a verse or two, and the answer shall become clear. In fact, may I point you to verse number 12. The wicked plotteth against the just, and gnasheth upon him with his teeth. The Lord shall laugh at him. We see a reference to the wicked. God is going to laugh. He laughs at the choices of the wicked. You and I realize that to be wicked is no minor matter. It is a serious thing, and yet there are many who make a choice, a provision, a pursuit of ways of life that involve wickedness. And yet the text reminds us that even though the wicked plot... We encounter that word, remember, even in the previous psalm, Psalm 2. You notice here that the wicked plot against the just. One of the attributes of wickedness is it manifests itself in so many instances in one's interaction with others. Oh, it's true that wickedness impacts oneself, but it in many instances leads to treating others in the way that they ought not be treated. Don't you and I remember texts such as, Do unto others as you would have them do unto you? Matthew 7, verse 12. And so as the wicked take advantage of the, those that are helpless, or take advantage of those that are needy, or take advantage of those who are in other circumstances beneath, say, the provision of their own, the text says, The Lord shall laugh at him. Does this person who is wicked suppose that by his actions he will secure for himself an eternity in heaven? Well, of course not. Is it not the case that God shall have the final say? Is it not the case that God shall have the final verdict on that behavior? Throughout the Word of God, we encounter references to the final disposition of the wicked. I would use the slide before you to remind us of several truths that we should ever keep in the forefront of our thinking. The forces of wickedness are great. They really are mighty. We ought not suppose that they are trivial or that they are somewhat meek in in terms of weakness, but rather we find that the spiritual forces of wickedness are highlighted in verses such as Ephesians 6 verse 12, and they are in heavenly places. And those efforts so often manifest themselves in ways and in places which bring about so much evil for so many people. And the text says God shall laugh. 
to these in such positions as that. Those rulers who have conspired, those individuals who have wrought wickedness, do they actually think that God shall somehow overlook this or that it shall not receive the retribution of heaven? The verse again says, The Lord shall laugh at him, for he seeth that his day is coming. His day is coming. One of the strongest efforts presented to you and me in the Bible is the reality of judgment, a moment of reckoning. When the deeds done in the body shall be brought to bear in the recognition of, have we been submissive to the things of God or not? In 2 Corinthians 5, verse number 10, we read, So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. That's borrowing Romans 14, 12. But in that case, we notice that everyone shall receive the things done in his body, whether it be good or whether it be bad. Each of us can be reminded. We, we can certainly rest upon the confidence of the fact that there's coming a day of judgment. May we be quick to say, God takes no pleasure in the activities of the wicked. We might even pause at this point to reassure ourselves. When we speak about God's laughter, think about the reasons you and I laugh. As I mentioned earlier, maybe it's a funny joke. Maybe it's something that has transpired or happened, and it is just so humorous. So far, these verses we have seen do not detail God laughing for that reason. His laughter in both of these instances we've seen so far has been centered around what we might describe as the disposition, the almost shocking truth of those who would suppose that they can act against His will and be successful. God will laugh at the very thought of it. God is not mocked. One of the surest guarantees of the Bible is that God is not mocked. You may notice on that slide before you, as God laughs at the wicked, there's this constant reminder His day is coming. Isn't it so often the case that those seeds of wickedness that are sown, they will generate and bear fruit, and that very person may come to rue the day that that decision and that choice was made. But at the very least, we could guarantee at the day of judgment, when the deeds of the body are brought to be appreciated, that those who have been disobedient to the gospel, 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 8 and 9, will be those to receive the flaming fire of vengeance from the Lord Jesus Christ. It is then, surely, that it will be fully recognized that that, sent, that sentiment, that laughter that God would have shown earlier is surely a matter of sadness at that point. One final thing on that slide would be this one. You gain a sense from this text about the issue of vengeance. You and I know we're taught that on earth we are not to take vengeance. But you and I know that God says that He will. In Romans 12 verses 19 and following, that description is presented wherein God will have given the fullness of His Son in an effort to allow man the opportunity of salvation. And yet those who have chosen to reject it, those who have chosen to ignore it, those who have chosen to act in defiance of it, we're taught that that disobedience will then finally be punished. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. 
it might be in that regard. In this same passage, look at just a few verses later in Psalm 37. Verse 17, For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholdeth the righteous. The Lord knoweth the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. There's this distinction between those that are wicked and those that are upright. In wisdom, you and I should ever make the choice to be in that upright category. And upright has reference to righteousness, a reference to those who, again, are those at whom God is not laughing because they understand the seriousness of their service to the Lord and they strive to behave in ways that are now described in verses 19 and 20. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time, and in the days of famine they shall be satisfied. But the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord shall be as the fat of lambs. They shall consume. Into smoke shall they consume away. So far, God's laughter has been an encouragement very much of the absoluteness of His being, the nature of His will, and the rather tragic state of those who choose to act against it. There's one final reference to the laughter of God. Would you be turning with me to Psalm 59? Psalm 59, and we will focus in a moment on verse number 8 to bring us to that time. Allow me to point out a few things again that preface it in the opening verses of that chapter. Deliver me from mine enemies, O my God. Defend me from them that rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity and save me from bloody men. For lo, they lie in wait for my soul. The mighty are gathered against me, not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O Lord. They run and prepare themselves without my fault. Awake to help me, and behold. Thou therefore, O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to visit all the heathen. Be not merciful to any wicked transgressors. They return at evening. They make a noise like a dog and go round about the city. Behold, they belch out with their mouth. Swords are in their lips, for who say they doth hear? But thou, O Lord, shall laugh at them. Thou shalt have all the heathen in derision. We could easily proceed in that reading, and we shall look at a few additional verses in a moment. But to bring us to that time, look back to the scene of how this chapter begins. There's a reference in verses 1 and 2 to enemies. To the enemies of whoever wrote the psalm, and it would appear to have been David. You may appreciate that some of the sweetness presented here reminds us about there will on occasion be those who greatly disagree with you and me. They feel quite differently. They behave in ways that often are directly that of an enemy. They would willfully accomplish harm to you and me if given the opportunity. But may I say in that light, David knew that kind of personage rather well. And in this instance, he pleaded with the help of God so that that might not take place. Let's look very carefully then at verse 8. But thou, O Lord, shall laugh at them. As we make an application of this to ourselves, could I invite you to borrow the words of Romans 3, verse 10? There are many who choose to work iniquity. And that very phrase occurs in this chapter 
And Romans 3 verse 10 goes on to say that the number of the righteous, I'm sorry, the number of those that are not righteous is very great. But it is in that connection that we now see this. You and I, as dedicated individuals to the cross of Christ, isn't it so? There are enemies to that cross. Paul referred to them in Philippians 3. There are those who live as direct enemies of it. It might well be that they would not verbally affirm themselves in that category, but by the fact they refuse to submit to it, they are behaving as enemies to the cross. And Paul in that very passage identifies that they pursue the matters of the flesh. They pursue the lust of the body. That's which satisfies only that which can be seen. You and I know quite well that many in our world actively make that choice. Consider how few choose the services on Sunday evenings and Wednesday evenings, for example. Consider others who choose not to attend the Sunday morning Bible studies. All that reminds us that many times priorities are elsewhere. Choices are certainly made in other directions. And you can apply that to many other realms of life, whether it be the attributes of prayer, the consideration of Bible studies, the pursuit of truth as every way the Word of God reveals it. And all the while, we're reminded that these who construct themselves in that fashion are arraying themselves as enemies of the cross of Christ. Back to the text before us. God laughs at those circumstances. I hope, though, you would agree with me that this kind of laughter is not because some joke is funny. It's not because something has become humorous. These folks are lost. And in the finality, it's not that God's laughing at them because they're lost. He's laughing at the sense in almost disbelief that they are making that choice. God's will will forever be done. And they may choose to live a life upon this planet and enjoy the goodness and the fullness and the provision of God in so many material ways and yet refuse to honor in the ultimate sense the one who provided it. That kind of behavior you and I see in a parallel fashion will bring about the ultimate laughter of God in almost a shameful consideration that they made that choice. It might well be as you look about the middle of that slide. Should we reaffirm God is not happy at all at the condition of the wicked. It's not as if He's happy they're making those choices. It's His desire that everyone will be saved. The blood of Christ was shed for the capability of forgiving the sins of everybody. 1 John 2, verse number 2. It's no wonder then that in this passage, verse 8 again says, But thou, O Lord, shall laugh at them. Thou shalt have all the heathen in derision. There's that word again. God will mock at the ultimate consideration. They will not succeed. I've asked you to remember Galatians 6 verse 7. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. 
each and every person will receive that which he or she has sown. And you and I notice that the affirmation of the Word of God is that. The intent of heaven shall not be overthrown. God will laugh at those circumstances in which others suppose that they will overwhelm and overcome and thwart the very purpose and plan of God. We began tonight's study by reflecting upon the laughter of God in Psalm 2. And one more time, it is in that place that there's a rather direct and clear reference to Hebrews chapter 1. It is in that sense I would read at least a couple of the verses in Hebrews chapter 1. And let us make one final connection. In Hebrews chapter 1, I'll begin reading in verse 5. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That's the very verse quoted directly from Psalm 2. And again, when he bringeth the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. That him, of course, is Jesus the Messiah. And of the angels, he saith, Who maketh his angels spirits, and his ministers a flame of fire? But unto the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning, hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. They, are, they shall all wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up. And they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. The image is a rather impressive one, isn't it? You notice that God sent the Son into the world, and He even is far superior to even the angels. And even the angels have been given order and command that they're to worship Him. And in this context, we go on to notice that the great kingdom of the Christ is the kingdom that is supreme. And one final observation is then this issue of the final disposition of this universe. Did you notice that reading of verses 10 and following? There will come a time it will be folded up like a garment. There's coming a time when the ending of all things shall be. The laughter of God. I hope tonight as we've at least looked at some of those things, it does allow us to conclude like this. There are occasions when our God does laugh, but it appears not to be for the same reasons you and I might. His laughter perhaps is more easily described in this way. It's almost a shocking thing in light of the choices that people might make against His will. I gave my son for them, and they refuse it. I have in fact orchestrated all the affairs so that they could be saved and they refuse it, and they act as enemies to the cross, and they behave themselves as enemies to uprightness, God shall laugh at them. On that slide, I would finally remind you of Psalm 2, Psalm 37, and Psalm 59. It is not a laughter on the part of God of enjoyment. It's a laughter connected to the conviction of His will and the absoluteness of the truth that is His, that it shall prevail. And that should be a great comfort to all of us. 
the human family has often sought to reorganize what God has orchestrated. Do people really think that they can redefine marriage, for example? Do people really think that they can redefine what constitutes the matters of salvation and worship? And all the while, God just laughs, sitting in His heavens that though men may try and plot, they will never succeed. God's truth has been asserted, and it has been revealed. This evening, as you and I have thought about the laughter of God, I hope it has reaffirmed our faith and conviction in what He has revealed to us in the Word of God. As you and I analyze ourselves, if there's one or more in this assembly that has appreciated an unrightness, something amiss between you and God, Now's the time to address that. It's not tomorrow nor next week or at some distant future time. For that convenient season that Felix hoped for in Acts 24 may never come. But today is the day of salvation. To borrow the wording of 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2, if we could help anyone tonight, perhaps you would wish to become a Christian. You realize the plan of salvation has been what the Word of God has revealed testifying to the need for you to have a convicted faith in Jesus as the Son of God, to repent of your sins, to confess the marvelous name of Jesus as the Messiah, and to be buried in baptism for the remission of sins. We would love to be an assistant as you involve yourself in those works this evening. If you have known the life of Christianity but you have allowed over time maybe a gradual movement to where you no longer are faithful. You realize that you could be in a position where God's starting to think about laughter at the choices that you're making in terms of your mindset. Don't let that continue. Come rushing back to the faithful side of the Master. It'd be our delight to make observation of your repentance and confession of those sins. If we need to pray for strength or encouragement or that you would have the fortitude to meet the need and the challenge of some particular issue in life, we'd be happy to do that too. Whatever the need of your life could be in those ways, if we could be of assistance, Brother Don has chosen a song of encouragement. And we'll use this as a time to extend the Lord's invitation. As you stand and sing in a moment, we'll invite you to come. If we all we can assist and do it at once, while together we stand and while we sing.